So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. Um, we've looked at uh, the office of overseer and saying, okay, well, what is it that the church ought to be doing? How ought the church to be structured and how should it function? And so we looked at overseer versus the word elder versus the word pastor and saw that they're all the same thing. There's these three different words that kind of give different aspects of the office, but it's all the same thing. And so we've started looking at these qualifications here in chapter 3. And we looked at how out of these qualifications, we kind of summarized it into 15 different ones, depending on how you number it. Of all of these, all of them are expected of regular Christians, except for maybe two of them. The ability to teach, every Christian is not expected to be able to teach. And then not being a recent convert. Obviously, there are some Christians that are going to be recent converts. Okay? But everything else is something that's also expected of Christians in general. So we've been going through the list, sometimes one, two, or three kind of qualifications at a time. We've looked at being above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, not a drunkard, uh, respectable, and well thought of by outsiders. So this week, we're going to look at hospitable, not violent, but gentle, and not quarrelsome. And that's all in the ESV. Your translation may word it slightly different. Um, but that, those are the ones we're going to be looking at. So turn your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, Hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. So we'll stop right there. So I'm going to give a brief overview of each of these phrases, and then we're going to come back and kind of tie them all together in the end and look at some application for us. The first word here, hospitable. What does it mean for an overseer to be hospitable? So the word here is a combination of two words. The first word is love. The second word is the word for stranger or guest. It's similar to the word uh, Philadelphia, which is brotherly love, love of brother. Or the word philosophy, it's the love of wisdom. So it's the same thing here. And this is the love of stranger or the love of a foreigner or an alien or a guest. To get a better idea of the word stranger here, Jesus uses this in Matthew 25 34 through 35, you'll be very familiar with this passage. I'm going to read these two verses for you. It says, <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. And you invited me in. So Jesus is giving the appropriate response for a Christian as they encounter, <clears throat> excuse me, as they encounter different people who are hungry or needy or thirsty. And when it comes to stranger, what we see is that the appropriate response to a stranger is to invite them in. This is the idea of hospitality in part. It's more than just a thing that you do, like, oh, you've opened up your home. It goes beyond that, and it's having a heart for others within you that causes you to serve strangers, such as inviting them in. It's this love of other people that causes you to act that way. That's the idea behind the word. 
So we might think of hospitality as, okay, so I need to learn how to entertain guests. I need to learn all these. And the idea behind the word is a lot deeper than that because you can entertain a guest and really just not love that they're in your house or not love that you're having to interact with them. This hospitable goes beyond that to say, I have a love of the strangers among among us. And here as a church, it ought to especially be true. When people come in that we don't know, we ought to reach out and say, hey, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Hey, I, you know, I, I would look forward to getting to know you. You know, We ought to welcome those people. But I think what happens sometimes is strangers come in and, well, they're strange. <laughs> I don't know this person. I'll let someone else reach out first. If everyone has that mindset, no one will reach out. But if everyone has the mindset of, I'm going to be the first one. Only one of you is actually going to be right, but at least that person will feel the overwhelming warmth whenever they come in to our church. This is the heart that Jesus has when he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well we looked at on Sunday mornings. When he healed Gentile leaders and Gentile people instead of just Jews. When he saved the criminal next to him when he died on the cross. When he put one of the ears of his enemies back onto his head after Peter cut it off. And he picked it up as he's being arrested and he put it back on the man's head and healed him and then walked off. Jesus has a heart for strangers and we should too. So this is the idea of being hospitable. Well, what about this next phrase? Not violent, but gentle. So there's a unique observation here in that these are paired. It's two in one. And in the ESV, that's the only one that's paired together. If you look at another translation, they try to pair it a little bit differently. But either way, most of them aren't, no matter how you look at it. Most of them are not paired. But this one, it's two in one. It shows a disqualifying trait, and then it's opposite. So an overseer is to be not violent. That is a disqualifying trait. And then as an explanation of that, not violent, he is to be gentle. So in English, violent is an adjective. It describes someone. Someone is either violent or they're not. The noun version of that would be violence. Someone has displayed violence a thing. Violent is an adjective, but in the Greek, it's a noun. It's a noun form of the verb that means to pound or to inflict with calamity or to smite. So this person who is not violent is not the type of person who would pound or inflict calamity. It's to be one who does not do that. In the spirit of using opposites to define words, it's the opposite of a man who says, I'm going to meet you in the parking lot after this and we'll settle it there. Which most of us are very familiar with. <laughs> Growing up in the South, that's how we handle things. You got a problem? I'll see you outside. Okay? That, that's just how we're trained. That's the opposite of what this is talking about. It's a person whose instinct is not, we can settle this real quick in just a few minutes. That's the opposite. That's the antithesis of someone who is not violent. But we might be tempted to think that, okay, well, not violent but gentle means I need to be a pushover or non-confrontational. I'll read a passage of scripture for you from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, 
patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So the Lord's servant doesn't hide from his opponents. He corrects his opponents. But notice how he does that. He corrects his opponents opponents with gentleness. Correcting someone takes courage. Especially down here, red-blooded Americans, we're prideful, we know what's going on. To go up against someone and to correct them, you know they might not take that well. And I think if most of us are honest, we probably all don't take correction well. It's hard. So that takes courage to go to someone and to say, I have something to offer to you that you need. They might not take it well, especially if they're your opponent. But the man of God, the Lord's servant, says, I will correct you and I will do it with gentleness. And what does that look like? It says in the, in the verse there, patiently enduring evil. So the picture is of someone who knows that conflict might be coming, yet they go forward to make a correction anyways. And this person does so with gentleness, expecting to receive backlash. And when the backlash comes... This person doesn't respond with violence, but patiently endures it. That is a strong man. A weak man is one who uses his strength and might to force others into submission. But a strong man can stand underneath the weight of that and endure patiently and respond to his opponent with gentleness. It takes an amount of fortitude that is rare. It's really easy to see this one in Jesus. It's really easy to see it. He's on trial. He's enduring beatings and insults. And what does he do before his accusers? He stays silent. Hey, tell us who prophesied you. If you're the son of God, tell us who hits you. They're beating him and saying, hey, tell us which one of us hits you. If you're the all knowing God. And what does he do? He just stays silent and he endures it. Why? Because he wants to die for them so they can be saved. This is a man who is not a pushover, but he was gentle rather than violent for the sake of his enemies. That's what we ought to be. That's what we ought to be. Not violent, but gentle. This last one here, not quarrelsome. This is one who does not engage in battles, fights, controversies, or striving. It's very similar to the one we just looked at. But the difference is violent has to do with the personal pounding. It is an individual thing. This word has to do with large-scale battles, large-scale fights. The first one is more individual. This one's kind of corporate. Another translation Uh, translates the same word as peaceable. And I actually think that might more clearly communicate what the word actually means. Peaceable. This is a person who doesn't get wrapped up in a larger battle or a fight. And I think you could even take it a step further and probably say, it's probably safe to say that this person also seeks to dispel battles and fights. 
So it's not just that they don't get involved in it, but they don't want that present. You see something going on and you step in to take corrective action to make sure that that doesn't exist. It's not just that the pastor avoids these things personally, but that he seeks to end them as soon as he sees them. Should be pretty clear why this is important for a pastor to do, right? A pastor who is overseeing the church, that's the title here, overseer. He is charged with overseeing a localized body of believers with different gifts, personalities, temperaments, likes, dislikes, attitudes, favorite sports teams, tastes, preferences, desires. This is a breeding ground for controversy. We have this running joke with a music minister. I don't think he's at the church anymore, but his name is Philip. Philip, have you ever come across this? Um, yeah, you'll like this. So Stacy is from up north, and she grew up in Connecticut for a, a good long while. And so naturally, what football team do you think that she grew up liking and rooting for? Instantly, I've seen some smiles. You got it. Patriots. Okay, big Patriots fan. So whenever I meet Stacy, you know I'm from Louisiana. You know, so of course, me growing up, my experience is my dad every year rooting for the Saints and then then just never winning. And him finally giving, I mean, he's finally just like, they're never going to win the Super Bowl. Then the unbelievable happened. And they, and so now we're all like, now they're going to win it again. And it's like, uh, okay, well, I'm just going to keep waiting, okay? And so Stacy doesn't have this experience. She roots for her team, and they are just pounding in the victories. Well, we get to Cyprus, and I'm married to Stacy. so when the, when the Patriots are playing and, uh, and it's going against whatever other team, I'm going for the Patriots because my bride goes for the Patriots. Well, Philip Wade finds out about this. And uh, I don't recall what his favorite team was, but it certainly wasn't the Patriots. He, he, he did not like the Patriots. And he would give this hard time about, oh, but in that church never failed. You could stand up from the pulpit and say something about a certain team. And you could just hear it among the people like, oh, he's going to talk about this again. you know, Or here's an Alabama fan or whatever. We get so riled up. The church is filled with an infinite number of people with an infinite number of personalities and likes and interests. We're not going to agree on everything. We're not going to do it. There's going to be there's going to be disagreement. And there's always the joke, oh, we well, disagree about the color of the carpet and all these different things. There's going to be disagreements. The pastor as an overseer looks at this and recognizes what unites us as a church is not all those things I just listed. What unites us as a church is that we are all redeemed by the Lord. We are one body in Christ. We have that commonality. And when the pastor sees these divisive tendencies start to create conflict in the church, he steps in and says, this is not worthy of dividing our unity in Christ. This can't happen. Satan is intending this for evil, and I will not allow it to continue this way. So the pastor, in part, is trying to dispel these smaller fights for the sake of our unity in Christ. And for this to happen, we as the body of Christ need to develop this ability, this attitude of peaceableness. We need to get to a place where we don't want to see these fights. 
We must not seek to be quarrelsome. We must seek to end quarrels when we see them in others. Titus chapter 3 verses 10 and 11. I'll read to you real quick. It says this. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This instruction is for all believers. This isn't like, hey, leader of the church, if you see a divisive person, do this. No, this is, hey, if you're a Christian, here's the instruction for you. If you, Christian, see someone who stirs up division, warn him once, warn him a second time, then have nothing to do with him. That's not the pastor, though the pastor falls into that category. That's not the deacons, though the deacons fall in that category. That's the everyday Christian. That's all of us. We all have a responsibility to protect the health of the church. It's a joint effort that we join in for. This is a really Really strong warning against division. To say, warn him once, warn him twice, then have nothing to do with him? Can you imagine if, and I haven't been here as long, but if me and Tom get in a disagreement and suddenly I have stopped interacting with Tom completely, just cut it off. That seems so foreign and strange to us. That's the warning here if you notice someone who stirs up division. What does that tell you about this? It's important. It's important. Scripture constantly uses the imagery of yeast spreading through dough to talk about how sin can spread. And Jesus even used that talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. And it would spread through and multiply. And it's the same thing with division. That attitude will take root and then it will spread in a congregation. And what starts out is like a little crack on your windshield eventually will spread and spread and spread until the whole windshield is ruined. And that can happen in a church. So the warning is if you see a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him because that person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. Too many times what happens in the church is that divisive talk is allowed and accepted. And we justify it by saying, well, I didn't take part in the conversation. That was them. It wasn't me. We've allowed that to happen. And it will tear a church apart. When we hear of division within the church that works against the peace among members, we need to act upon it. And when someone approaches us and says, because we always think it's somebody else, we cannot see our own faults, not nearly as easily as we see the faults in others. I think that's why Jesus gives the warning. Before you go and take the speck out of your brother's eye, Get the plank out of yours. The instruction isn't don't take the speck out because you've got a plank. That's not the instruction. It's yes, take the speck out, but first make sure there's not a plank in yours. 
We so easily see what's wrong in others, but then we don't see it in ourselves. So what that means is when someone comes to you and says, hey, brother, you've got something in your eye. Instead of getting defensive and say, we've got something in your eye. You can't tell me. We stop and say, I'm sorry. Swallow your pride. Apologize. I'm, I'm sorry. If I've offended you, I'll tell you, I will likely, me, Garrett, I will probably offend someone in here. Hopefully it's accidentally. And I hope that whenever you come to me and you feel safe coming to me and saying, Brother, this really hurt me the other day. The Lord will grant me strength to be able to say, I'm sorry. That's what we all need to do. When someone comes to you, you might be, maybe accidentally, causing division in an area. We need to have strength to come to one another and say, this is going to be divisive. And then we need to have the strength to be the one to say, I'm sorry. That's how we're going to fight this. And so yet again, this is what Jesus does for us. We're divided from God. We are separated from him because of sin. So what does Jesus do? He warns us of our condition and then he saves us from it. He makes peace between us and God by the cross. Tying all of these things together. Each of the qualifications here have a common thread. And I'm curious if you can see what it is. I'm going to give you a minute to glance back down at the passage. Compare these traits that we just looked at with all the other qualifications. Above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not a lover of money, manage household well, can't be a recent convert because it might be puffed up with conceit. Well thought of by outsiders. Do you see something different about the ones we just looked at compared with, I think, every other one of those? Mike can make an exception for one. Here's what I've noticed. The common thread between these, one of them, is that all of these we are looking at today all have to do with how we interact with other people. These other qualifications have to do with holiness. That's a personal thing between you and the Lord, or integrity, not doing something for greed or for selfish gain, or abilities, able to teach. But each of these that we've looked at today deal with how we relate with other people. The pastor, pastors of a church must be, the pastor must be a people person, must be a people person. Not a people pleaser and not even necessarily an extrovert. He must love people, all types of people, in his heart and with his actions. Why? Because he is overseeing a church full of strangers. My blood relation to everyone in this room goes back thousands of years. You were not my grandparents, my cousins. Now, a lot of you actually are very closely related. (laughs) But really, we're a bunch of strangers. How is it that a bunch of strangers 
would gather together twice or more a week, every single week, and come together and have this peaceable unity. And then how does that happen? Through Christ. As the church is overseen by the shepherds and the pastors. The pastor oversees a diverse group of strangers, so he must be a people person. Likewise, all Christians, and I have to be very clear on this because I think it would be debated. All Christians are to be people, people, as we've just defined it with these phrases. This is not a popular statement, but I think it's a biblical one. All Christians are to be people, people, as we've just defined it. We are all called to love our enemies as ourselves. We're all called to look not only to our desires, but to the good of others. We are all called to invite the stranger in. We are all called to make people feel loved and welcomed. This love for strangers, this hospitality. We're all called to feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty. We're all called to be ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. If your response to this is, well, I'm just not a people person. What you're really saying about yourself is, well, I'm not really a Christian. And this is hard. We can't hide behind our personality as an excuse here. That's just an obstacle that the Holy Spirit will overcome as you pray and submit. We all get annoyed by people. We all get annoyed by people. That guy laughs weird. For all I know, you probably think that about me. He's got a, he's got a weird laugh. He acts this way. We all get annoyed. We all get hurt by people. Why, why? They knew I was going through this. Why didn't so-and-so say something? We all get confused by people. What would cause someone to say that? That this is a universal problem. But we are all called to respond to other people as Christ responded to us in our stubbornness and sinfulness. And how did he do that? With gentleness, not violent, not quarrelsome, but being hospitable to us and loving us as his enemies. So may we do the same thing. And you better make sure your pastors are doing the same thing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that you have brought to us today to fight against our tendencies to shy away from maybe those people that are just annoying sometimes. To shy away from those people that are just different. As we read through this passage, Father, we pray that you would give us a spirit of gentleness. Take away our spirit of violence that might cause us to seek these battles and to join in with these fights. To aid in the division of the church. Father, we don't want to be those types of people. We want to be a people who are defined by our love for strangers and others. 
We want to be defined by how we welcome people here to hear from your word. Father, we want to reflect your son, Christ Jesus, in everything that we do. Patiently enduring evil. When we have to interact with our opponents, it's with gentleness and self-control. Would you make us into that type of people? Would you give us strength to be able to resist being drawn into these fights and quarrels? Would you give us the strength and the resolve to be able to step in when they're going on and to put an end to those things with gentleness? Would you help us to be imitators of your son, Jesus Christ? We thank you that you've sent him to be all these things for us. To call us your sons and your daughters when we were your enemies. To die on the cross in our place to grant us his righteousness and to take from us our sinfulness. We cannot say thank you enough, Father, but we do say thank you. We love you. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I've got a a passage of scripture I'd kind of like to read for us as we um, exit something for us to reflect upon. Might be a good passage to jot down and to read and reflect upon maybe later tonight or tomorrow. It's in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, kind of summarizing our our call here. 1 John 3, 11 through 18. I'll read this and then I will be dismissed. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen. Y'all are dismissed. Y'all have a good rest of the week.